1: Welcome to Truth Be Told, where we believe an experience becomes truth. Today we're exploring the mysteries on our planet and beyond.
2: We invite you to join us with an open mind and a desire for continued knowledge from some of the leading experts, researchers, and some of the best-selling authors from around the world. We also want to remind you that Conscious Life Expo proudly sponsors Truth Be Told. To get your tickets to their February Expo, go to ConsciousLifeExpo.com and be sure to pick up books and other products from our guest at www.AdventuresUnlimitedPress.com where books can bring answers and a new passion for knowledge.
1: Today we go back to the beginning of mankind, searching for answers to questions that humans have been asking since Adam and Eve.
2: The Anunnaki. Who were they and where did they come from? Did they influence early man in a good way, or were they simply using humans as slaves in order to mine Earth's precious minerals for
1: themselves? And finally, we're getting the answers to these questions and more with our next guest.
2: Marshall Clarefeld is a Caltech graduate engineer who benefited greatly from his 50-year career in business and politics. His current pursuit of the history of the Anunnaki has propelled him into the field of ancient history. And his research has uncovered what may be a defining moment in archaeology. He believes the information in his book, The Anunnaki Were Here, may rank among the 10 most important archaeological finds of the 21st century. Marshall is the author of several books, including his latest, Mysteries of Alien Technologies. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the expert that's here to answer the mystery behind the Anunnaki history, Marshall Clairfeld.
1: Yay! We're here with Marshall Clairfield. How are you doing?
3: Thank you. Great, great. That was a wonderful introduction. You covered a lot of ground there. Well,
1: we're, we're well, we're glad that you have that experience that we can cover. Uh, well, that's, that's true, right? Uh, all right, everybody that uh, is uh, tuned in f- with us today, we're so excited to have our guest. I'm Tony Sweet. I'm Eddie Connor. I'm Walt Lusk. And uh, we're going to dive right into it because Marshall, you know, I've been a lot of ground, a lot of of ground. And, uh, you know, even though it's about 50 minutes, that goes really fast. Uh, We want to go ahead and start uh, with a few questions because a lot of our audience, they don't they don't know who they are or why we're here. But the, the biggest question is, who is Marshall? Who is Marshall, and uh, how did you get started in this uh, in this quest to discover? Oh, that,
3: that's, a, that's a good question, Tony. I guess it all started back in 1947 when I entered Caltech as a freshman. Uh, that summer, the Roswell incident occurred, and of course in the bull sessions around the house where, where I was a freshman, we all, all we talked about was UFOs. I mean, that was the, uh, the exciting news of the day, and here I was in this scientific uh, incident. With a bunch of smart people, and I wanted to know, you know, um, where did the UFOs come from and who was behind them and all those kind of questions. Now, um, prior to entering Caltech, I'd been doing a lot of reading in the Bible, and frankly, Tony, I found some mysteries in the Bible that I couldn't uh, uh, find answers for, so it kind of came together in 1947, and I had the uh, wonderful experience of of having some great teachers and, and getting into uh, some great answers to questions. For instance, uh, I had for physics a guy named Richard Feynman. Uh, Feynman was the uh, uh, Einstein of my generation. Hmm. Uh, he's probably the smartest guy that ever I talked to. And One day in a brazen interview, one-on-one with him, I asked him, I said, uh, Dr. Feynman, do you believe in UFOs? He said, uh, Clarkson? I believe in the law of probability of the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy and of the hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe, the law of probability tells me there are 10,000 solar systems exactly like ours. Ours is the youngest, as you know, and if any of those other civilizations survived their space age, they could have visited us. And I said to myself, wow, what that answer is beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> and it took me 60 years Tony, to figure out what the uh, phrase was if they survive their, their space age. We're at that point right now. Mm-hmm. Our civilization is uh, just creeping into our space age, and we're equipped with missiles and atomic weapons, and we're on the verge of being able to destroy ourselves and not continue the experiment. So I did some reading as the years passed and asking the questions to myself, you know. Uh, where did we come from, and what's the universe all about? And I discovered a guy named Zachariah Sitchin. That was kind of like in 19—we'll fast forward to 1999.
4: <laughs> Last century. <laughs>
3: and and uh, Zachariah pr- proposed uh, certain uh, theories in his first book called The Twelfth Planet. And once I discovered that, I, I uh, formed a uh, friendship relationship, long-distance telephone, then in person to person, for over a 10-year period. And during that period of time, uh, we discussed, as he had uh, pronounced in his books, uh, this space-age civilization called the Anunnaki, which uh, apparently colonized planet Earth over 400,000 years ago Hmm. and uh, left some remarkable uh, signatures here on our planet and uh, did some wonderful uh, creations. And perhaps the greatest creation was uh, you and me, Tony. So that's that's how I got into the, the history of the Anunnaki. And it's very
1: fascinating. I mean so fascinating because you know many many people, you know, have opportunities to to get intrigued by something and then they, you know, they may d- dwell in it or dive into it just a little bit. <laughs> but you 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 went like head first and and what was that first adventure that you can tell us that you went on when when it was dealing with the Anunnaki? Well, uh the first time, you
3: see I was curious about where we came from. That's that's the main question. I think that uh, uh, the first question is where we humans came from. The Mm -hmm. second question is where the universe come from. And those are pretty uh, difficult questions to answer. The the second one, where the universe came from, I think is still uh, in doubt. Nobody really uh, can answer that Mm -hmm. question. But uh, whereas we are uh, the dominant species on this planet, and we we shouldn't be here, you and I, (laughs) it should not exist, honey, because uh, evolution is, is a theory that works, but the other animals aren't creating uh, buildings and uh, rocket ships and uh, all the things that you and I are associated with. Humans are a species that is just not supposed to be here. In fact, uh, the species before us was called Homo erectus. Mm -hmm. And they were a species that evolved, according to Darwin, over 1,800,000 years, and they populated all the parts, the land surfaces of the earth, came out of Africa, and over 1,800,000 years, they evolved. But the most advanced they got, Tony, was uh, stones and spears. (laughs) Their technology was primitive, and there was no reason for them to become civilized because they didn't need to. They just survived the way they did. And then all of a sudden... Uh, 200,000 years ago, uh, the species Homo sapien appears in Southeast Africa, and it's much more advanced than this uh, Homo erectus species. It starts with a civilization that eventually appears in the Sumerian culture, and the Sumerians appear about 9,000 years ago, and they have all the first. They have literature, they have writing, they have uh, music, uh, philosophy. Et cetera. And the question that the anthropologist asked, how could a civilization of only 9,000 years ago appear with all of the uh, fundamental uh, requirements for a civilization? And that's how I got into this you know, answer that, that Zachariah brought to us, which was that we are, um, uh, we are a civilization that is, is remarkable and, and hard to explain.
1: And I know Zachariah also, He is he the one that first deciphered the tablets um, from, is it Nana, Nineveh? Nineveh? Nine, Nineveh? Nineveh? Nineveh,
3: yeah. Nineveh, right.
1: Was he the first one to decipher these uh, tablets?
3: No. No. no uh, actually, these tablets, the cuneiform tablets, where all this information comes from, there's a, uh, your audience should understand that there's a large database of information from which all the stories about the Anunnaki emanate. It's called the Cuneiform Tablets, the Samarian yeah. Cuneiform Tablets. They discovered over 300,000 of them around 18, early 1800s, and there were other people who started translating them. Zachariah was just one of, of many uh, translators, but he was able to, uh, because of his background in um, uh, history and, and languages, Uh, put together a cosmology of what they were saying and make some sense out of it. The other people who had made translations of these uh, cuneiform tablets came up with a lot of uh, different uh, understandings. He put it together, and and as far as I'm concerned, um, I think his his translations are the ones that make the most sense because he was able to tie it into the Bible. He was a biblical scholar, and he grew up... um, Hebrew, He could could read uh, five or six different languages in the original form, and he taught himself how to translate uh, cuneiform and understand what the Sumerians were saying about this uh, flesh-and-blood beings that lived with them, who they called the Anunnaki. You see, the first time we hear about the Anunnaki is from the Sumerians. The Sumerians claim that they lived side-by-side with this space-age civilization, and... um, most
2: of our information comes from that database. So um, and Marshall, I am I come from a metaphysical background and I'm very fascinated with the paranormal. I don't think of this as paranormal. I think of this as an actual reality if that makes sense. And I'm curious, I have two questions. The first one is when you share this with certain people that are let's say uh, religious scholars and that sort of thing, what are yes. you normally met with whenever they hear this information for the first time?
3: Well, you know, uh, there, are, there are faith-based people, which are the ones that you're referring to, and I encounter them continually through my uh, lecturing and, mm-hmm. and conferences sure and so forth. And I I tell them, I said, you know, you, you should believe in your faith, trust what you've learned, but keep an open mind.
2: Well stated.
3: And the information that, that I'm revealing to you is coming from some hard Data, data that is hard to, um, uh, you know, spell. It's written, and the interpretation of it uh, has to be something that you want to deal with as far as your faith base goes. And I I tell them that the most interesting thing about the Anunnaki was that they had a a deity. They had a deity, and they called their deity the creator of all. And believe it or not, they didn't have the answers to everything either. They didn't know where the universe came from. In fact, frankly, I've asked myself many times, Tony, uh, where did the Anunnaki come from? Mm
5: -hmm. Who
3: created them? And, you know, their civilization maybe was a million years more advanced than us, obviously, to have come to the planet Earth from their planet and uh, travel through the distances and and the uh, rigors of space travel, land here and colonize this planet 400,000 years ago. And and create many of the magnificent structures that we look at today, and give credit to other people. That's what's fascinating.
5: Wow!
2: And, and um, go Pardon? ahead. No, go ahead. I was sorry. I didn't know you were. I I didn't know you had another thing you were going to say. What were you going to say, Marshall?
3: No, just that the the fact that uh, my my research has led me, Tony, uh, into areas today of things that uh, our historical books tell us were built by the Romans, the Greeks, the yeah. Egyptians, mm-hmm. and uh, the Samarians. And I'm starting to question whether they really were the architects of those structures because I'm reverse engineering them. Fortunately, I have a mechanical engineering degree from Caltech, yeah. and I'm uh, able to do that in my mind, and I say, no way <laughs> for <the laughs> general contractors? So pretty much
4: that's your personal as well as your professional <laughs> opinion.
3: Yeah. Say again?
4: That's your personal as well as your professional opinion.
3: Yes, it's my personal and professional. Yes. And I, 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 what, what I do in my books, guys, is I put a lot of color pictures. I don't know if you've ever seen any of my books, but yeah. they're eight and a half by eleven. They're kind of like a life magazine, <laughs> and they're filled with uh, hundreds of colored pictures. And I, I tell a story, and I say, you know, these are the facts that I'm reporting to you. I'm a reporter, a researcher. And you make up your own mind. I'm mm-hmm. just telling you that this is what I see, and this is what I know from my my professional opinion uh, would be required to do this structure, to put this thing together. And I just don't think the uh, local folks had that technology or the equipment to do exactly.
2: it. Exactly. Wow. God. I, and I love you make up
3: your own mind. I don't. I don't tell people to believe what I say. I say just open your mind and try to figure it out for yourself. Well, for
4: I reason. mean, the mind is like a parachute. If it's not open, it's not any good.
3: Yeah, you're going to be mm-hmm. stuck
2: in that habitual cycle where you're where you don't want to be, but constantly bitching about where you do want to be. <laughs> um, and Marshall, I'm very interested about something I've heard through my studies for many many years about Atlantis and other civilizations as well, and yeah. I have heard numerous times about. There being intergalactic kind of exchange programs, for lack of a better way to say it, in Atlantis and the Mayan and the Lemuria, et cetera, et cetera. What's your spin on that, with what you know and with the Anunnaki?
3: Okay, um, I. <clears throat> it's a very good question. In fact, Atlantis is one of the most interesting puzzles that most of us uh, try to figure out. Uh, I've done some research myself on it, but I know that if there was uh, a civilization, like say. Project us a million years from Earth, say 10,000 years from now. We are space-age travelers. We go to another planet, and we find a, uh, a kind of a primitive aboriginal uh, species there, and we, uh, you know, give them ten rules to live by and show them where, what the history of, 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 of their civilization might have been. It's kind of a, a look back at what we are and how we got to where we are. You have to kind of uh, expand your mind to uh, believe that if what is said in the uniform tablets—the fact that they came here, that the, uh, the space age civilization called the Anunnaki came here—and that what they did is they they built cities for themselves before there were for where people know if they got here 400,000 years ago where there were no Homo sapiens. Yeah, I was going to say,
4: if if, you, if the Sumerians are 9,000 years ago and they've been here for 400,000 years, I mean, yeah. that's a pretty right. big gap.
3: Yeah, huge. yeah. and, and, and <laughs> we know that the first skeletal remains, mm-hmm. guys, of Homo sapiens is about 200,000 years old in Southeast Africa. Okay. So if you start there, right, and if you look in, in the short time of 200,000 years, we're walking on the moon in 1969, We've advanced our tool-making way beyond Homo erectus. I mean, come on, give me a break. How would that happen?
4: Well, the pyramids are supposedly 10,000 years old.
3: The pyramids? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: That's a rumor.
3: uh, If if the pyramids, say, were 10,000 years old, uh, there were no Egyptians 10,000 years ago.
2: (laughs) Wow, yeah. that's just so that, – that's what it is. Why those, are we
3: crediting them? I know. <laughs> that's one of those
2: wonderful common sense between the eyes, bullseye, slap you down and make you go, oh, my God. Do the math. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Thank you, Marshall. So, well, these are the things that pop up as you do, do the this math. research. And, and you avail yourself of the
3: information, and you look at the timelines. You say, well, my God, you know. Uh, we weren't advanced enough, but we didn't have the tools. I mean, you absolutely absolutely uh, not. Uh, the Egyptians, about 3,000, uh, 5,000 years ago, uh, had copper tools. Copper and bronze were their tools. And the stuff that is built and credited to them is all made out of polished granite. Hmm. You can't cut granite with copper and bronze And, tools. and a few of
4: those, a few of the boulders that it was built were, were and you can't good size. It together.
3: You, you can't move. 10-ton or 100-ton blocks of granite out of the quarries and down the river and into the various places they said they did this. So I'm finding all these fascinating stories that are kind of folklore.
5: Yes, right. And and
3: people, it's interesting, the uh, archaeologists tend to repeat each other. They say, well, this guy said that, so I say that, and that must be what it is. (laughs) But it isn't.
5: (laughs) Well, enough saying. It must be true. uh,
3: Mysteries of uh, Alien Technology, I go into such structures as the... uh, the Parthenon in in Greece and the uh, Pantheon in Rome and the Mm Colosseum in Rome. Right, and Machu Picchu. And all the obelisks in Egypt. And I say to myself, you know, these things are remarkable in their uh, ability to have been carved out of solid rock, granite, and Mm -hmm. then moved a great distance and then put in place.
4: So It takes a
3: lot of technology to do that. So you're implying they're hiding
4: in plain sight.
3: That's right. That's right.
2: Well, and, and also, um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to On Air with Tony Sweet at UBNRadio.com.
1: And I'm Tony Sweet. I'm Eddie Connor. I'm Walt Lusk.
2: And we're having a wonderful interview about the Anunnaki with Marshall Clarefeld. And I've been to Peru p- more specifically to Machu Picchu, Wainu Picchu, the and that sort of thing, Marshall, three times now. Each time that I have been there as an intuitive, as a sensitive, I've been able to— Just randomly, not deliberately, just have these spontaneous psychic visions of some of those gigantic boulders, like what you see at Sexy Woman and Machu Picchu, literally being elevated up by some force. It wasn't humans, in my personal opinion, and and locked in in some kind of like ridiculous labyrinth of stones interlocking each other that are gigantic, tons and tons worth of weight. And then I saw on your website and some of the things that you've done on YouTube about Machu Picchu. Give us just a, a couple of sentences or your perspective about the Anunnaki in and at Machu Picchu, if you don't mind.
3: Okay. Okay. Fine. That's an excellent question. Um, in fact, I feature Machu Picchu in both my recent books, "The Anunnaki Were Here" and "The Mysteries of Alien Technology," because it's a it's a, it's a structure that. You know, lots of people climb up there and wonder about it and look at it. And I looked at it from a distance, and it looked to me like a gigantic set of washboard, all those terraces that Mm -hmm. come down the mountainside at all different angles. In fact, they feature a picture of it in one of my books, From the Air. And it just looks like a gigantic washboard. And one day it dawned on me that the purpose of the Anunnaki, the reason they came to our planet uh, 400,000 years ago, was in search of gold. They needed gold to uh, solve a problem that they had back home on their home planet. They kind of burned a hole in their ozone leak, I mean, in their atmosphere. And like a spaceship, if you punch a hole in a spaceship, you're in trouble. Right. So they were in trouble on their planet. One of the solutions, uh, the only solution that they found would work was to powder gold and and blow it up into the ozone hole, and it would help it seal itself because gold reflects the sun, and somehow that's a healing process for, for ozone leaks. But they didn't have any gold on their planet, so they came to Earth and they mined their gold. Now, they were doing it before there were humans. For 200,000 years, they were mining gold in the way that we do it today, is to dig down under the Earth, find a vein, and then go through all the process of banging the rocks and smelting them and refining it and getting the gold. But 11,000 years ago, everybody kind of agrees there was this great flood. And the Great Flood covered the earth with uh, miles and miles of mud, thick mud, which buried all of their mines and kind of cut off that type of supply. And it dawned on me that there was an easier way to get gold, which was to take the nature's force, which is nature in the spring runoff in the snow peaks of the Peruvian Alps, strips gold out of the veins and takes it into the rivers and brings it downstream. And if you could separate that gold out of the water, it would be a lot easier than, than digging for it. So in order to do that, today we've, uh, in 49, 1849 in California, they had what's called a sluice, a sluice box. And the sluice box had in it kind of a washboard uh, surface. And gold being 19 times heavier than water, if it bangs into something, it'll drop. and it drops into the slot. So if you ran the sluice, uh, river mud from the Placid Rivers, through these sluice boxes, you could separate the gold out. Well, here's what came to me like a light bulb went off. If you could just take the Placer water and drip it over a terrace surface, you could precipitate out the gold onto a, uh, a structure like Machu Picchu. Now, as you climbed up to Machu Picchu, you encountered several other Structures that are never talked about, but they're all terrace structures, right? Yep, yep mm-hmm. that's right. That's right. Every one of them is a terrace structure. And you look at the step pyramids throughout Central and South America; they're step pyramids, right? They, yes. right. they
4: are. That's right. Absolutely.
3: Okay, so it dawned on me that this was a system that could work if you knew how to collect the gold. It was in my third book, uh, The Anunnaki Were Here. I, I pronounced this theory, which I called the Washboard Gold Mining Theory but I never explained how they picked up the gold after it got on the terraces.
5: Mm-hmm. In
3: my fourth book, I bring the solution uh, full circle, which, which I think reinforces my, my theory of how that worked. And I, it was another light bulb that went off, and, and we can get into that if you want to. But of course, I of course. believe that these structures up at uh, Sachi Woman and uh, the, the zigzag walls, if you look at the zigzag walls from the air, it's a step pyramid on its, on its edge, So the stream would come down through those two channels. You know, there's three sets of walls there. You could have actually uh, three channels of water coming from the uh, uh, Peruvian Alps filled with placer gold, and it would bang into these corners as it came down that hillside running against the wall. The reason that the cornerstones are so humongous is that there's a tremendous amount of force from water banging into it. So it had to be rock solid to, to resist that, and the gold would collect in the corners. And all you had to do is have a, me- a mechanism of picking it up. So I pronounced that as a washboard gold mining system, also. Mm. And I went to uh, Sicily a couple of years ago, and there's a, f- a thing, a structure there called the Greek amphitheater.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Amphitheater is a bunch of terraces. And my research, uh, I was able to prove that that was originally w- uh, water coming over those uh, terraces because it was limestone cut out of a solid mountainside. Uh, 450 degree diameter circular structure, but a bunch of terraces. And the key to that was that there were stairways in between the terraces, which were 12 inches high. And if you've ever been to, uh, say, Chitsunitsa, which is a step pyramid, climb the stairway, try to come down, you find out you're totally disoriented because 12 inch steps are not built for humans. They're built for much taller species, and you have to kind of sit down on your rump and bump your way down. So I figure that uh, these guys, the Anunnaki, were reported to be about 9 feet tall, and 12-inch steps would fit them perfectly. And if the Greek architect who built the amphitheater in Sicily wanted humans to climb up and down, he would have provided 7-inch steps, mm-hmm. not the 12-inch steps. In fact, the Greeks covered them over with wooden stairways, 7-inch wooden stairways, so that they could get people up and down into the amphitheater. So, in fact, they inherited this structure and converted it to their use. But it was not originally built by them. And just as Machu Picchu was not originally built by the uh, Incas, uh, I I think archaeologists are are just following each other when they claim that that was Inca construction. It wasn't. Uh, There are 12-inch steps in, in Machu Picchu also built and carved out of the stone. And you ask yourself, this is a granite mountaintop that's been leveled. Part of the uh, main area with where the with where meadow, is is a, is a plateau that's been leveled out of granite. Now w- we know that the Incas didn't have any tools uh, strong enough to, to uh, uh, put a dent in granite. So how the hell could they have done it?
2: Exactly.
1: Is there? A, I want I want to ask a question in Machu Picchu. When you were yeah. saying the the water, how did they pump the water
2: from your from the Urubamba River? How yeah. did they pump the gold? To from yeah. the river? Okay, good.
3: Good question. Okay, Great question. Uh, I have two theories that I can't prove them yet. I intend uh, to go down there and try to prove it. But <laughs> pumping water is no big task. For if you have a, a space age civilization, could got themselves to our planet from another planet? <laughs> pumping water. This is true. Let's not let's not put that as a problem. But <laughs> the, the easy way to do it is that the. Uh, uh, eastern side where the river comes on the eastern side of that peak. If you look down at the at Machu Picchu, it's, it's kind of a really uh, uh, sharp curve where the river comes and goes around the peak and goes down the other side and it's, it's, the elevation is dropping so it's at least a couple hundred feet higher on the uh, front side of the mountain as it, it is on the south side of the, yeah. on, on the west side of the mountain east and west, let's say. So you could siphon it. It's easy to siphon water if it's higher and lower. Or you could use, you know, whatever pumping system they had. But the secret of it was that you couldn't uh, run the water over the terraces at full speed. You had to have a controlled uh, pump so that the water would uh, go down in a, in a controlled mechanism manner so that the gold could precipitate out. Mm-hmm. If you flushed it down fast, it probably would just not you right. know, collect you a lot of it. it wouldn't Collect the, the maximum gold. amount of gold. The water had to be controlled. And I'm sure if you look at uh, uh, pyramids like Chichen Itza, the pump house was at the top, and the water supply was in the uh, cenote, which is right next to it. And I've, I've produced a picture in my book showing that when the water level, I was there in the year 2000, I think.
1: I saw that video. Water, yeah, it was great.
3: The water level was up to the top, but now it's gone way down, and there's a huge uh, kind of a concrete wall with a hole in it which I think was the entrance for the pumping
5: <laughs>
3: of that water, because it's, it's an underground river, feeds that cenote, and it's filled with plaster gold, and they just pumped it to the house on the top of the uh, Itza, El, El Castillo, I think is what they call that number, and then just poured it over the edges. Now, an interesting thing about that structure is that the stairways, there's four stairways on, on the four sides of the pyramid, right? Mm-hmm. And those steps are 12-inch steps, but they don't give you access to the terraces. Now, I produced the picture in my new book, which shows there's, a, on the side of that stairway, there are climbing stones that protrude from the side of the stairway, and they gives you access to the terraces. And why would you put protruding stones all the way up the side of the stairway uh, for, for looks? It's not as, not as pretty as a smooth surface, but it, certainly we're climbing stones gave them access to the terraces
1: so they could collect the gold. That that is so fascinating. Because, I guess, I like said, I was watching your your video on YouTube about, you know, the pyramid and the pump that that, that uh, you Oh, the Great Pyramid. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna go that's that's let's, <laughs> let's go to that's let's, let's fly from, you know, <laughs> where we're I'm at to, to yeah, the Great Pyramid. Because okay, great. that was oh, fascinating. Yeah. I I mean you you can tell you're a brilliant man because this ADD person could not even come close to that, and, and well, it, it's so believable. It's so believable.
3: Have had theories of what went on inside. That was the most complex interior of any pyramid ever built. Mm-hmm. And let's say it was built ten thousand years ago. It had to have a function and a purpose. Right. So it wouldn't lovely. have gone to the trouble of building all those chambers and all those passageways. And as I explained in my book, everything inside there is watertight. Right. And in order to build watertight with stone. That takes some pretty clever uh, work.
4: And, they, and make people believe that the tight. Nile so River said, well, was,
3: it was, it was watertight. They had to put water in it, yeah. and then there was a guy who uh, wasn't me, but a guy named John Cadman uh, figured out what the uh, hydraulic pulse pump was. It's hmm. called the Pharaoh's pump, and I show that. that hmm. if, you, if you built a—and there was a, a, a moat around the base of the, of the Great Pyramid so that you could fill it with water and raise the water level up to the entrance— It's about 36 feet above the ground. And then you had this descending passageway, which was a perfect Mm chute to make a a hydraulic pulse pump work. And I have, uh, in my lectures, shown uh, how that works. And the main feature of all the stuff inside the Great Pyramid is the Grand Gallery. And the Grand Gallery is a beautifully structured uh, cobalt ceiling. In other words, when you had these huge pieces of granite stone connected together, and you built a vaulted ceiling like it's it's an upside-down pyramid. If you look at it from that angle, the water surged in and out, up and down the Grand Gallery, bumping against these cobalt ledges as it went up, and knocked the gold down into these 27 slots, which were built on either side of the, uh, the stairway up the Grand Gallery, and that's where they collected the gold. And the most interesting thing to me was that there's a sarcophagus in what they call the king's chamber, the top chamber of this system. Mm-hmm. And it's all damaged. All the outside edges are damaged. And nobody's ever explained why that thing's sitting inside the king's chamber. with its All the exterior edges are, are terribly uh, uh, beaten up. And my theory is that that thing floated. When the water got up to the king's chamber, it floated the box. Archimedes tells us anything with a hole in it will float there's this 10-ton stone sarcophagus floating around inside the king's chamber, banging on the edges and causing all the damage that we see. And in one corner, they finally damaged enough uh, down to the part where the water went into it, and it sunk. Hmm. And I think that was the end of that usage. Uh, one of the marvelous things, guys, about the Anunnaki is that they had multiple uses for everything that they did. Mm-hmm. All their... Uh, edifices could be used in many, many ways, and, and they were very clever. And I think later on, uh, the interior and uh, the design was used for other things, and people have expounded on that. Uh, Chris Dunn has done a wonderful job calling it a power plant. And uh, I don't know if you've read that or not. Mm-hmm, uh, not. That's very possible later on. But what I'm saying is originally, its original design and use was a uh, washboard interior uh gold mining operation, and they took the Nile River, which was filled with plastic gold coming down from the Nubian gold fields every spring runoff, and put it in there and, and produced gold. Well, that's so- my theory. Now, I, I want people to challenge that. I want people to come and attack me on that, <laughs> because I think it's something new that's been uh, never thought of before. And I'm pretty proud of having figured it out, but I'd like other people to attack me on it. And, <laughs> what, and for those of you don't know,
4: um, <laughs> thousands of years ago, the Nile is actually right next to the B- Great Pyramids. It's obviously moved due to time. So I mean, there's I mean that alone from a water source is you know straightforward in that regard.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, they move water around very easily. They were marvelous uh, uh, hydraulic engineers. If you look at the aqueduct, the Roman aqueduct right. system,
1: that was amazing. Yeah.
3: Yes. Uh, There's a bridge in France, southern France called the Pont de Garde. I feature that in my new book. And it's a bridge put together entirely with precision-cut stones and no mortar. All the arches, everything in there, and there's metal clamps inside of it that hold the stone together. The stones are not Mm -hmm. held with masonry. They're held by gravity, friction, and Mm -hmm. metal clamps and it stood there for 2,000 years across that river. Hmm. Every other bridge that's been built across that river has been wiped out. So you've got to ask yourself, how the hell could a bridge supposedly built by the Romans lasted 2,000 mm-hmm. years and also acted as an aqueduct? Not only was it a bridge across the river, but it was an aqueduct that brought water to a, a community called Nimes in southwestern uh, France. And I feature that in my new book, Mr. Uh, by the way, if your audience is interested in seeing any of my books, they can go to my website, Tony, and that's uh, com. That's what,
1: yeah, yeah. We have that up on the screen right now, so people okay, out there, yeah, great. make sure you guys there, check the, it out. The
3: first page will tell you the story with a little video I've posted on the first page. You go to the second page, and there's a selection of uh, books there that are available as ebooks, available as hard copies, and also available as
2: Kindle books. And for.
3: Multiple and, choice.
2: And for the audience, it's Adam the Missing Link. It's one of the books, Mysteries of Alien Technologies, and of course, The Anunnaki, We're Here, and that's all at adamthemissinglink.com.
3: Yeah, and there's another book there called Gilgamesh 10. Oh, I love that's, this. That's one of the most interesting. It's the first story ever written on the planet, and we wrote it as a screenplay.
5: Hmm. oh in the, in the really
3: book, in the screenplay format and we're hoping one day to make a movie I yeah, don't anybody, pick, anybody picked it up yet
2: <laughs> right well you know they just did stranger at the Pentagon yeah Craig Capabasso did that and it, it it has started already to win a bunch of things at the independent film festivals and breaking records across mm-hmm. the board so we're moving the consciousness at least some of it mm-hmm. is moving in the right direction to wake people up Personally. if you will yes. and and so Marshall When the Anunnaki came to the Earth plane originally, did they just sort of inhabit the entire thing before us humans came on board? Or just certain power places?
3: Yeah, okay. The story from the Cuneiform uh, database is that they splashed down in the Persian Gulf. And they Mm -hmm. tried to mine the gold out of the uh, bottom of the Persian Gulf. And they got some gold, but mostly they got a bunch of other stuff. So they figured that wasn't uh, very productive. So they moved inland at the mouth of the uh, Tigris-Euphrates River, which is uh, the beginning of uh, the Mesopotamian uh, civilization. And that's where the Sumerians came from. But before there were the Sumerians for 200,000 years, they had a a city complex. Uh, Sitchin describes it very uh, vividly in his book, The Twelfth Planet. And there were uh, 10 or 12 cities, which he calls the olden time. They were just Anunnaki cities, and the Sumerians produced an interesting uh, document called the Sumerians' Kings List. And in the Kings List, they named the kings in the length of time that they were uh, in their kingship in this uh, city complex, which was in the uh, tigris euphrates complex. And it wasn't until after the Great Flood, of course, that was all wiped out in the Great Flood, that uh, that was eleven thousand years ago. About nine thousand years ago, we we nine to six thousand years ago, you get the Sumerian civilization in that same area, and these are human uh, civilizations, but they're cohabitating mm-hmm. with the Anunnaki. And this is what's fascinating about the book Gilgamesh Ten. We wrote a story where we project you backwards forty six hundred years into the city of Uruk, where this king, who by the way is two thirds Anunnaki and one third human, he's a hybrid. Oh, and he's rattling around with the Anunnaki and humans. It's a fascinating look into what the history would have been like at that time, and we we are very proud of that book. My wife did all the dialogue. <laughs> it's, it's a fun book. The fun book. Yeah, anyway, no. Uh, w- what we've done is we've produced uh, these four books, which are, as I say, Life Magazine format, eight and a half by eleven, filled with lots of colored pictures. Makes it easy to to uh, understand Sitchin's theories. Sitchin was a brilliant scholar. He wrote 15 to 20 books, I think. But they're hard to read, frankly. Right. And I told him that. I said, Zachariah, I had this 10-year relationship with him. I said, you know, do you mind if I produce a book <clears throat> that explains your stuff, but it's in kind of a picture format, like life magazine? He says, Marshall, that sounds like a good idea, but I want you to be sure to, when you use any of my stuff, you say, by permission from Zacharias Hitchin. I said, of course. <laughs> so I, wherever I use his stuff, it's a little uh, n- note there. says, with permission from Zacharias Hitchin. But um, he was delighted that um, I thought enough of, uh, of his work and his theories and agreed with him on everything except a couple of things. We, we had some disagreements, but <laughs> it wasn't, they weren't disagreements. They were my thinking outside the box, guys. And I said to myself, you know, you're you're... Giving us the translation of what the Anunnaki said and what they did, and da 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 da, and the reason they did this and the reason they did that. I said, did you ever think that they were spinning us? He said, Marshall, what do you mean spinning? <laughs> I said, well, the story of the of the mutiny in the gold mines. I said, maybe they just wanted to create a slave species, and they get, had an excuse.
2: Which is what I was going to ask next. Were they here cohabitating in a friendly way, or were they manipulating the human race, or was it a combination <coughs> well, of all of them? Well,
3: we obviously were primitive workers. We, we took the place of all the, the menial-level work that they have been doing themselves, the gold mining and mm-hmm. the servant job, you know, what normally uh, a subservient class would do for an advanced class. That's happened all throughout history. Sure Nothing has. new about that. Mm-hmm. But uh, their intents and purposes towards us, that's a good question. Uh, A lot of people asked me that, and I said, well, there were two leaderships in the Anunnaki. There was the Endolites and the (laughs) Enkiites, And Enki was the one that, uh, if you read the story of the Great Flood, which, by the way, appears in the 11th tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's what's fascinating about that story. They tell you what really happened. Uh, during the Great Flood and before and after and during. And it's not the same story in the Bible. The, the story that appears in the Bible of Noah and the Ark, you've got to ask yourself your question, how could uh, any human being build a, a ship large enough to contain? Right.
1: And it was very more general in the Bible, too. It was just kind of like basic, the the, okay, the, the cliff notes. The
3: well, that <laughs> answer, by the way, is explained in the book. Yeah. Wow. When I retell the story of the Great Flood in Gilgamesh 10, you'll get the real facts about what all happened. And, of course, the people who uh, wrote the Bible, the, the stories there came from the Cundiform uh, database, but they didn't have the technology in their minds or the advancement to understand certain things, so they used and presented it in what they understood. Oh. That's, that, that's how we got those stories in the Bible, because they weren't advanced enough to translate what technically was really going huh. on. So whenever Fascinated. they're talking
2: about starships and spaceships, it's something they had never known at that point, so they described them as suns and stars moving across the sky. Exactly,
3: or, or as chariots. You know, wow. Von Donegan contributed the first book in 1964 chariots called chariots The Chariots of the God. Gods. Mm-hmm. There were celestial uh, vehicles, and uh, some descriptions of them came into the Bible. And By the way, guys, if you go to chapter uh, in Genesis, uh, go to Genesis 6:4, and you'll see that the Nephilim, the word Nephilim, were upon the earth in those days. They were the sons of gods, and they coveted the daughters of man, and had intercourse with them, and created the giants of old, the men of renown. <sighs> And uh, you know you got to ask yourself, who the hell was a <laughs> <laughs> that, that this I mean because
1: this those, is fascinating. Because those are the this stories so that we
3: get from the cuneiform database. It tells about the intermarriage. I mean, uh, Gilgamesh himself his, his mother was a uh, Anunnaki queen, and his father was human, so he was two thirds Anunnaki.
5: Hmm. And we have guys
3: like Atlas and, and Hercules and all these giants. Humans that were so strong—they
2: were hybrids. And we only have like five or six minutes left, Marshall. But I have this really interesting question for you. When do you think we will continue to find proof? I know we found proof of some skeletons and some ruins and different things like that. But when do you think um, it will be more available, so that the the human race will stop and go, okay, I get it now. We have proof. Let's let's expand our consciousness. <laughs> In our that's lifetime, a great, or?
3: great question, and I'll tell you, that's why I write my books. It's in my books. In other words, what I've done with my books in a subconscious way is given the evidence, the factual, physical evidence here on planet Earth that could not have been done by humans alone. Wow, we love it's Too that. much advanced technology. So if you put it all together and connect the dots, you've got to come away with the, the, the answer that you're asking me is, you know, who did it? It wasn't mm. us.
2: And obviously, it was
3: an advanced civilization that did it. And what, it, it reinforces and, and proves, I think, the stories in the cuneiform tablets, that they were here. They, the Samarians called them uh, flesh and blood beings, and they described them, and they uh, wrote about them, and they they said everything we have was given to us by the Anunnaki, which means all their technology that uh, appears mi- miraculously out of nowhere. You know, people come out of the caves, they don't have uh, philosophy and music and literature and, and all that stuff, uh, astronomy, astrology, like the Samarians did. So you got to ask yourself, well, where the heck did they get it? Mm-hmm. Well, they tell us. They got it from the Anunnaki. It was technology transfer. And then when you take my books, all my books, and you look at all the evidence that I presented that is physically here that you can go up to and touch and feel and climb like you did at Machu Picchu, and then you got to ask yourself, well, how the hell did this happen? And, you know, the locals couldn't have done it. They didn't have the tools or the knowledge of how to do this. So some more advanced civilization had to have created it for a purpose. Now, I've given the purpose. The purpose was to collect gold, Mm -hmm. and I figured out how it was done. And I'm saying that now's the time for people to accept the fact that we are the product of an advanced civilization. We all share their DNA. They were, in fact, the ones who jump-started our civilization by... implanting their DNA, as explained in the cuneiform tablets, into this species Homo erectus. And Homo erectus becomes Homo sapiens, and then Homo sapiens becomes Homo sapiens sapiens, the more intelligent. And if you trace all that through my books, I explain it very simply with pictures and uh, supportive evidence. All the physical evidence you would need is in my books, and you have to make up your mind that that's really what happened
1: all right. Before we get out of here, I want to know one one other question: is when when did the uh, Anunnaki disappear from history? Since
3: they phased off the planet, right? Yeah, and when, and, and, have, right? And,
1: and have and have they ever been back since?
3: Uh, well, some some people think they haven't all gone. <laughs> oh wow! Some here, I don't have any proof of that yet. Uh, well, I'm getting close to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's, That's exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> but <clears throat> we think it was, uh, you know, maybe uh, 600 years ago. 600? I mean, uh, 600 A.D., around 600 A.D. Wow. AD, I think, uh, the last evidence, because they had to be there for the building of the Colosseum. They had to be there for the building of the Pantheon and the, the Pont Guard. All these new structures that I'm... Uh, pronouncing in my, my fourth book uh, are within the last 2,000 years and they had to be here to do that So, but they <clears throat> they didn't go back excuse me John, i got a frog in my throat. that's okay
4: so if you're going 600 they, AD that's they had the mothership
3: and they phased off on the mothership and they're probably hanging around out by Mercury and they can come back anytime they want not uh, that they have to wait for their planet to come back through uh, they never could go back to their planet because they were told that they had lived on our environmental uh, situation for so long that they would die if they went home to their home planet. Mm. So they're still on the mothership, and uh, they can come back any time they want. And I believe, and this is a positive thing for your audience, that they saved us in the flood. In other words, we were, would have been gonzo if they hadn't been around during the flood and after the flood to, to help us survive under 10 miles of mud. And if they save us once, and if we get into deep trouble again, which we're approaching very rapidly right yes. now, yes, yes. They, may, they may come back. My hope is they'd come back and save us from ourselves.
2: And obviously they're, obviously they're not the only beings out there that have come back and forth from the Earth plane. Is that your opinion as well, Marshall?
3: <clears throat> You'd have to talk to my daughter about that. <laughs> uh, she believes in the star people and the Pleiadians and all that. I, the only evidence I have, guys is the database of the Sumerian cuneiform tablets and the cylinder seals. And if I can find some hard physical evidence of these other species, it very well could be many other species that came here, but I have no physical hard evidence that I can photograph and, and write about. My daughter does. She uh, does past-life regressions, and she, she has wow. all this information. But... Uh, she hasn't proven it to me yet <laughs> so i have to i have to, i'm a tire kicker I'm so so, so you school. haven't figured
4: it out from your past life huh yeah
1: <laughs> Well, we're it's we're pretty much out of time, and everybody, this is Marshall Clarfeld, and you need to go to AdamTheMissingLink.com, pick up these books. Uh, you can also go to Amazon, but these are fascinating. It, these are going to expand your mind. There's a better
3: deal on my webpage. The well, prices then, are better than Amazon. Oh, well then, yeah. then go That's to, uh, to
1: AdamTheMissingLink.com, and it's been such a pleasure. And we want you to, you know. Say it on air that you'll be back as a guest again. We'd, oh, we would oh, I'd
3: it. be happy to, Tony, any time. I think this is information that needs to be disseminated. You guys are doing a great job in bringing out the truth, and the truth will set us free. But we need to have everybody uh, telling each other what the real truth is, and I'm just one little cog in the wheel trying to do that and i appreciate the exposure and i'll be happy to come back
2: well and the other thing too marshall is we can tell that this is a passion for you oh, it's a so purpose good. for mm-hmm. you and that once you leave this earthly realm and you're up and non-physical looking down you're going to be like patting yourself on your invisible shoulder going <laughs> i did good waking those humans up <laughs> so thank you for that well, yes. thank
3: you i think that uh, you know i've had a lot of things happen in my lifetime but this is i've got the time now i'm at the uh, closer to the end than the beginning so <laughs> i want to use what time i have to help spread uh, this information so people can understand and hopefully once we understand that we're all brothers under the skin we all share the same dna we shouldn't be killing each other Amen. that's In right rhyme with my god's the right god etc cetera, etc
1: cetera. thank well, you thank you sir thank you so we appreciate it and uh, you're welcome go get the books we love you guys And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have Ross Hamilton. Don't go anywhere. Thank you, uh, Marshall. Thank you,
3: Marshall. You're welcome.
1: God bless. All right. We're going to take a break. I'm on our Tony Sweet on UBN Radio. We don't want you to go anywhere. Don't touch that dial. That's right. Touch the dial. Be right
5: back. Touch it. (laughs) Touch it hard.
1: Welcome back to Honor with Tony Sweet, Truth Be Told, where we believe an experience becomes a truth. And thank you for supporting our awesome sponsors,
4: Conscious Life Expo. By going to www.consciouslifeexpo.com, you can get your tickets for the 2015 Expo at the LAX Hilton, February 6th, 2015 through the 8th. And many of these books by our guests can be purchased at www.AdventuresUnlimitedPress.com Take your mind on a vision quest through many life's mysteries with Adventures Unlimited Press. Now, you guys, at the top
2: of the show, we spoke about the Anunnaki with author Marshall Clarefeld. Now, for me, it was a fascinating perspective yeah, about sure the was. Anunnaki, absolutely, who they were, and
1: how they still affect modern man and their reason for coming to Earth. All right, so we're going to turn our attentions to Ohio. And I'm sure you're asking, why Ohio? Because Ohio is very rich in history and mystery. And the mystery comes in the shape of a serpent that is over 1,300 feet long. And I don't know about you guys, I'm not a fan of snakes and serpents. All right, right. so we're we're not actually talking about a, a a real life snake or a real life serpent but the Great Serpent Mound. Wow. Still curious? I'm totally curious. All
2: right. Now, the Serpent Mound is located in Southern Ohio, and this ancient earthwork depicts the form of an undulating serpent with an oval shape at the head, and it's thought to have been built by prehistoric native tribes.
1: My question is why would they build such a masterpiece, but you can only see it from the sky? Now I'm so intrigued. Mm-hmm. We need to hear more.
2: I know. I'm intrigued, too. It reminds mm-hmm. me of the Nazca lines in Peru, right? Oh, yes. So, let's let our guest, Douglas Ross Hamilton, go into detail about these mounds. Douglas Ross Hamilton is the author of several books, including The Mystery of the Serpent Mound, A Tradition of Giants, Wonders and Mysteries of the Great Serpent Mound, and his latest book, Star Mounds, Legacy of a Native American Mystery. Douglas also volunteers at the Serpent Mound as an interpreter and tour guide. That's how come we know he's really dedicated. Mm-hmm. And he studied the mysteries of the Ohio Valley Earthworks for years. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome researcher and author, Douglas Ross Hamilton to on air with Tony Sweets, Truth, Truth be told.
6: Yes,
1: Yes, yes, yes. Are you there, sir?
6: Yes, sir, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. we
1: can hear you great. And uh, I'm I'm here with Eddie Connor and Walt Lusk, my co host. Loud loud and clear.
5: Yay. Hey, Eddie, Walt.
1: All right, so we regions. we you know we've we've been traveling the, the earth with uh,
5: you know Anunnaki and the, the, the and, heavens and the
1: hinterlands, right? Yes. And now we're ready to talk about serpents and, and this you know this this is very fascinating because I, I've mentioned to a lot of people you know even here locally a lot of people don't even know about the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio and it's, that's I find that fascinating because this thing has been you know around for millenniums. And uh f- first of all, uh we want to find out about you a little bit because uh you know people want to go who who in the hell is this guy talking. So so who is Ross Hamilton?
6: Well, uh, I'm uh I'm a 66-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> I live in uh I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh with my spouse, uh, Leslie, and uh we uh as the, uh, as, the, as the fellow said, uh, we volunteer a lot and work at, at Serpent Mound uh, State Memorial, which is a uh, uh, probably at least 2,500 year old effigy to a serpent that was thought of by most archaeologists and early settlers. Originally, as something that was left here by Atlantean visitors. Mm. Ooh, wow uh, all, surrounding, all surrounding the serpent,
5: there are a number
6: of, um, of mounds, most of which are burial mounds. but right. a select, I say 70 or 80 of them were not burial mounds. They were temple structures that were composed of earth and stone, just like serpent mound. Now, recently, after you know the whole the whole area has been picked over for for such a long time, recently we've been able to apply new technologies and discovered uh, that magnetic anomalies uh, and electro, electromagnetic anomalies, gravitational anomalies, uh, have hindered um, archaeologists and uh, and other researchers from discovering that the serpent had a a north orientation. So it wasn't until 1987 that uh, the the true north orientation was discovered uh, through computer uh, uh, work, and um, uh, an alignment with the present pole star, Draconis, was established. And then the proverbial crap hit the fan, (laughs) and uh, we began to no longer see the serpent as a primitive mud sculpture that was made by a group of people that we don't know that much about because they lived so long ago. But assuming, of course, that they were uh, primitive and uh, didn't have our sophistications, it uh, has been taught to schoolchildren for a very long time that the serpent was uh, uh, pretty much a Stone Age relic of, um, of a, um, a culture that Had no uh, knowledge of any real spirituality, so the the north line changed all that for several reasons. First of all, it showed us that the serpent's coils, which go out to the right of the serpent mound, Mm -hmm. excuse me, of the serpent mound's true north line, uh, all began to line up with very prominent celestial events on the horizon. And did so not only very promisingly, uh, but also very thoroughly in that you can get all of the major um, solar alignments, equinoxes uh, rising and setting points, and solstice rising and setting points. But you can also get an entire array of lunar alignments, hmm. plus the, the, the bowl that the serpent uh, is holding in its mouth, or the, some call it the egg. Uh, has an alignment that goes right to the apex of the hollow triangular feature at the back of its head from the west that um, shows us that uh, they knew and celebrated the solstice-setting sun. And it meets the north line, the magnetic north line, the true north line, at a precise 60-degree angle. And from that, we were able to begin to extrapolate extraordinary geometries that, truth be told, uh, actually uh, were being developed by the Greeks just a couple of hundred years after the serpent was supposed to have been built. Archimedean geometries, Pythagorean specifically geometries, and Euclidean geometries are all found in the serpent and the surrounding temple sites. And this is at the same time or slightly before Euclid and Pythagoras and Archimedes lived. So we know that there was the signs of an advanced culture here. And further uh, investigation has kind of sewn up the probable fact that the serpent not only gives us complete astronomical knowledge because it also embeds the stars of the constellation Draconis precisely along the margins of its 1300 feet plus. But also when you apply it to certain specific classical geometric forms like the Vesica Pisces,
5: mm-hmm.
6: the Pythagorean theorem, the uh, the great solar hexagon or the flower of life as it's called today in common parlance, uh, the, the, the true circle, uh, the cube, and other three-dimensional things. We discovered that it serves as a template that describes and explains the spiritual meaning and the practical meaning of these geometric forms, some of which have been touted by uh, masters of geometry and mathematics for many centuries as being enigmatic and permanent riddles. Like for example, the Pythagorean theorem is explained by the serpent when you lay it into the theorem with uh, the, uh, the, the small square to the left and the medium square to the right and then the mm-hmm. large square to the base. You'd have to Google Pythagorean theorem to get an image of it, but what it does is it explains how the serpent was able to coordinate A squared plus B squared to equal C squared. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but wow. I teach class to that. <laughs> wow. Now, yeah. And, and, and the knowledge possessed in the Pythagorean theorem with the serpent laid over it, also gives us an, an exceptional uh, look into the mysteries of alchemy. Because the, the upper left square was symbolic of the element of sulfur, the upper right, that of mercury. And when you combine sulfur and mercury together, after you've augmented the sulfur and changed it in a certain way, the two of them combined produce what's called divine cinnabar, or, as is more commonly uh, appreciated, uh, the philosopher's stone. Now, the formula for the creation of the philosopher's stone was believed by the Pythagorean school to have been um, revealed when the Pythagorean theorem is mated with its enigmatic and inscrutable template, mm-hmm. but that's just one of them. And if you place it into the uh, into the tree and the flower of life, which uh, Druvolo introduced again, reintroduced, uh, it sits precisely, and kind of weaves in and out of the 20 of the 37 points internal to the flower of life, and uh, and the 24 points on the outside uh, seem to resonate with those 37 internal points. To give us a sort of numerology that corresponds to many of the visionary phrasings and the revelation to john and that's all part of the books and i go right. into great detail on these so but again the the geometry is only one aspect of what the serpent is speaking to us about and so the astronomy the stars the sun and the moon are all there as, as though the serpent were made to collect all the light of the stars and the sun and the moon, because all the rays of these heavenly bodies intersect with the serpent, along with the magnetic body of the earth being aligned to the, to the magnetic poles the way it is. And so we can truly say that the serpent was an advanced piece of astral architecture that may have held the secret of a sort of um, universal figure, that was enabling the ancients to not just prophesy—that's that would be a term we would apply to it today, out of a mystical sense that we still seem to possess from ancient Greece—but but also to elucidate the mysteries of life itself. Because what we found recently is that—and I showed this on the Ancient Aliens program—they were kind enough to do some illustrations for them, some some. Uh,
1: yeah, I saw it. It's great.
6: Yeah, um, some cartoons, I guess you would say.
4: Uh, <laughs> Animation. Um, yeah.
6: Animations, yeah. Uh, how the serpent may have been used to collect the the naturally occurring, internally generated energy of the earth, as you know, lightning tends to strike at high places, or places hmm. where the earth spirit tends to accumulate. That's why, before lightning strikes, you, you get, like, your hair will stand on end. And you get this, their hairs on your arms will stand on end. You get this feeling of, of silence. And, and uh, all of a sudden, whammo, the lightning <laughs> will strike, like, uh, 50 feet away from you on the top of the tree. Well, that's what they counted on. And they created these effigies, what, what the Cherokee called them, were Manitou's. And that's part of the Iroquoian and uh, post-Algonquin uh, legacy. And manatee literally means a, a sort of a spiritual creature. And, and what, the technology that these people possessed, and this is the same time as the Anunnaki were purportedly uh, um, working on the other side of the earth.
5: Hmm.
6: Um, the, uh, they, they possessed a technology that allowed them literally to distill the negative abundant electrons of the atmosphere in the form of lightning, down to be captured, like lightning in a jar. You ever heard that term? Yeah. Yes. Be captured in the head of the serpent and and sort of used right away to uh, to bless their sacred water and to power a jewel that they called the Ulanyasuki. The uh, Cherokee gave us that term, too. You can find that in Mooney who worked for the Smithsonian in the late 19th century in his uh, Tales of the Cherokee, or just the Cherokee, I believe this book is. But um, this medicine was manufactured copiously, and we think they not only used it to to extend their life expectancy, but also to sort of propagate a, a communion with the spirit of nature that extended itself to that of the Creator to the point where when we discovered that the serpent aligned to Draconis in such a way that it gave it a date, a date of 5,000 years ago, which is the end of the garden, then I began to realize, oh, that was the time Mesopotamia began to, you know, really become initiated properly. And so we're looking at a culture that may have been working for 2,000 years before it shut itself down. 5,000 years ago. So we're, we're talking about a phenomenon that covered the eastern half of the United States. It took the form of a majestic phoenix-like creature, the head of which was the state of Michigan, and the wings of which spread out into New England and into Dakota, Lakota country. Mm-hmm. And it may have had seven mighty golden cities that stretched from Sault Ste. Marie down to Tallahassee. Atlanta was built over one of those. Cincinnati was built over. And they all occur in a perfectly true north line. Wow! So, so Now this culture that started in the Ohio Valley perfected its technology and then spread it out throughout the eastern United States and created this fantastic figure, the remnant of which still exists today. And we believe that it was the Edina people and the Hopewell people.
1: I was going to ask you about the Edina people.
6: Yeah starting about 2,500 years ago, after the previous civilization had fallen into complete ruin, that through their stories and through their personal remembrances passed down from family to family and through a few artifacts, were able to pull together a sort of massive reclamation project where they kind of like incorporated the whole society of their people to begin to preserve the foundations of these ancient temples. And they did so with great love and finesse, so that the measurements and the geometric principles inherent in these foundations, um, thanks to a few maps that were made in the late 19th century, uh, early 19th century, actually it continues to the late 19th century. uh, We've been able to extrapolate that these people had advanced knowledge that even the Egyptians and the Greeks didn't possess. Really? And certainly, to our knowledge, not the Mesopotamian cultures. So um, Native American legend, as sparse as, as it's become because of disease and relocation and other prejudices that were fostered on the people, relates to us that they believe their ancestors were gods and that they had the power to live in the sky while living on the earth. And that they had the ability to move from site to site as quickly as we move from uh, place to place in our dream stuff, you know, like the Aborigines talk about.
5: Mm, And they created
6: this stuff that they called mana, and it got degenerated into the term medicine and became synonymous with love for the living Native people. And that it was through the creation of love between people that the, the tribes that we found when we uh, came here in the late uh, 1400s uh, were, were able to communicate um, that, um, that, that the essence of life and the essence of brotherhood is that which their ancestors going back many thousands of years were actually able to synthesize external to themselves in the form of living vital force that caused the trees and the plants and very rocks to become alive with life force. And so their science was that of the creation of the Manitou's. And we have evidence for a number of them within some of the foundation areas of these ancient temples, some of which were thousands of feet across, embodying these gigantic circles and squares and so forth. We recently—I think—you recently had Gary David on your show, and he visited yes. us summer solstice. We had a great time, and he was able to uh, put together more of these mysteries, which we're just now discovering. But we believe this. I do like the dialogue, but let me just say, one. <laughs> <laughs> we love it.
1: No, we're—we're we're here to learn, it's, so it's all good. Yeah, we're here to learn.
6: Okay, all right, cool, dudes. <laughs> uh, we believe that the phenomenon that reserved itself and became a myth that was inherited by the Greeks and given back to the world about the Phoenix rising mm-hmm. occurs not once every 700 years but once every 7,000 years and the whole earth comes into a thousand years of regeneration and, and enlightenment and then for another thousand years the Phoenix drops its wings and returns back to the form of a humble little worm after it immolates itself in the nest that it prepares. And we feel that the serpent mound was the worm of the ancient phoenix that came to life 7,000 years ago, grew up to become a great symbol of peace and democracy and interstellar trade. We think these people developed the etheric principle enough that they could trade with other planets for a short period of time. Hmm. And this was only 7,000 years ago.
4: Well, you say there's a 7,000-year cycle, right? Yeah. Okay, well, when's the and, next and one start?
6: It starts 2012, the new cycle
4: oh. starts oh. in 2012.
6: 2012. So oh, we're going we to be moving in according yeah. to what i consider to be the prophecy of the phoenix rising we're going to be moving into a thousand years of prosperity right now while we will see the return of the gods and also the the great the greatest of all the gods the one who came and incarnated you know the great messianic personages who came and incarnated to keep mankind in in hope and peace they'll all be coming back in, in their forms and we'll see this great country reemerge, and it'll produce so much of this universal life force medicine that it'll be able to export it to the rest of the world, and there won't be a dark mind
5: left. Well, it's interesting the because of the, the Mayan it.
4: calendar talks about that as well, and it's sort of in that general vicinity, an Age of Enlightenment.
5: Yes. Yeah.
1: And this, I think this is what people want to hear, too, and we need to hear because we want it so bad, a yeah, uh, majority absolutely. of us do. <laughs> uh, I know, you know, the Serpent Mount is very, a very spiritual place. Uh, there is tens of thousands of, you know, uh, burial grounds around that. But I want to know, on a personal note, what was the fir- what was it first like to drive up the first time you ever saw... The Serpent Mound. What did you feel? What did you see? What did what? I mean, what did you have any, you know, visions, you know, visions? You know, your uh, reactions. Yeah, your reactions to what it was like to pull up for the first time.
2: Great question.
6: Well, the, the, it was actually the first few times it got more intense because you can't go <laughs> for one trip there. I'm telling you guys, if you guys, you guys have got your third eye open. Your, your if your pin work even a little bit, and you're sensitive enough. That you can feel what other people are feeling and you can hear other people's thoughts from time to time
5: Mm. you will be
6: blown away by the serpent what I got was this stay away this is holy ground you have no business here and it wasn't angry native people saying it it was like the Great Spirit was saying that and then if you accepted that it would come to you and say no this is your place I was just testing you.
5: Oh wow. And
6: then you go there but you have this sense like you're Moses, you know, approaching the burning bush and you want to take your shoes off when you walk around <laughs> sacred ground. If, especially if there's other people there that have the same kind of reverence. And we know people that that don't like to wear shoes when they walk around the path. And there's something really awesome about walking around the serpent Some say that there's a physical phenomenon of fault lines that causes this to happen and that the electrical energies become so polarized that, you know, what happens when a magnet breaks itself and you Mm -hmm. can't put it back together because it reestablishes its spirit and polarizes itself Mm -hmm. so that you can't put it back together without it falling apart. Well, these fault lines, when you cross over one, there's this place that's sharp as a razor's edge that transforms your soul and your mind and everything. It, like, totally cuts you up spiritually so that you have to reform your plasma essence. Hmm. And, and you don't realize you've been reborn until you've taken a few steps. And then suddenly you realize something just happened to me. <laughs> you know, and they used to have benches around the serpent for people to sit down on, you know, like going to revival <laughs> where you know
5: you right, receive yeah. the Holy
6: Spirit and you have to be you have to be caught by somebody
5: all
1: right well
6: there's people that go out there that need to sit down after this happens to them but then there's people that go out there that, that, that don't experience hardly anything except they, they just get all giddy you know they mm-hmm. just have this funny feeling that that something amazing is going on there but you know it, it's, it's up to the individual how thick their skin is yes
1: and Oh, go,
5: ahead.
2: Whole, no, go ahead. Oh, what, and so, um, I, I was talking earlier, I, I've been to Machu Picchu a few times and what you, I feel how you just described the serpent mounds is so indicative of what I felt whenever I was in Machu Picchu, just more amplified. Yeah. And yeah. you can feel it radiating off of you as you speak about it, Douglas. Um, so I have yeah. a couple of weird questions, actually. Um, you said, um, all of, the serp- there are all of the serpent mounds, just quickly, how many are there total that you guys know of right now?
6: There's, there, there, we probably know about, of about 30 or 40 remnants of previous serpents, but we believe there were probably many more than that okay. that have been destroyed through farming and, and uh, mining uh, of gravel and, and things like that. Indeed. But uh, there was a, a very prevalent serpent culture that knew the last vestiges of its prominency among the Dakota Lakota people. And their current knowledge doesn't really embrace the uh, the metaphysical phenomenon they were able to harness with with the powers of heaven and earth being combined. But it's starting to, like, reseed itself among some of the Lakota medicine class. So we're looking forward to developments out there, with the, the return of the serpent and the thunderbird power, mm. and, and you, you know s- the, you know the legend of the serpent and the thunderbird was, was that the, the serpent was you know, uh, the thing that drew together the power of the earth, and the thunderbird would come, to deliver its charge upon the serpent. So we hear from Algonquin uh, legend that the uh, the great thunderbirds who brought the life giving rains were always in the hunt for the serpent and we know now it was part of their spiritual science where they create these massive serpent manitous and then evoke these divine thunderbird spirits from you know the astral plane into our world these people actually saw these yes beautiful wing i mean their wingspans were like i i don't know i've heard stories that they were as big as those great eagles and uh in the Lord of the Rings, that saved Frodo and company. You know when they were being taken off of the, mm-hmm. out of the volcanic field. Mm-hmm. Those those were the size of them, and that they they were living creatures that withdrew back into the etheric world when we lost the ability to maintain those sites. You know those places where the medicines were made.
5: Hmm.
2: Well, and you now, did we you? believe uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was going to ask you. are... You, I think I heard this properly, the serpent mounds, some of them were actually burial mounds and some of them were
5: not?
6: To our knowledge, none of them were burial mounds. None of the Manitou mounds were burial mounds. Okay. The people that resurrected the mounds, mm-hmm. the people that um, you know, refurbished the foundations, and this is my opinion, though. It's not hard archaeological opinion yet because it takes time for these things to, like, really sink in. But th- those people, um, they didn't bury their dead in the Manitous that they were recreating. Those were ceremonial sites, and nobody was to be – I guess it was kind of a blasphemy to them. So they created special earthworks. Most of them were round and conical in nature and they would just stuff a lot of bodies in there. Hmm. But oftentimes uh, you would find those burial mounds near these temple sites that they had refurbished. Remind you all of them are made in earth though. So the early pioneers who were kind of thick um, just saw them all as places to plunder for treasure and to plow down to plant more corn. I, I, it's a shame.
2: It, 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 it is a shame. It's fascinating first and foremost there's and so how long like was it a year each six months each or can you tell this yet how when that let's say they finished one serpent mound did they start right on another one and was it in harmony with what you're talking about with the cosmos and the and the astrology aspect i'm sorry sorry the astronomy aspect of it as well
6: that's 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 a good question um we found evidence for other types of manitos, not just serpent manitus, but, like, for example, um, eagle manitos. There's a number of them. Bear manitews. Wow. Creatures of power. Uh, great, big, uh, giant bear head manitews. Um, uh, uh of uh, creatures celebrating water.
5: Yeah. Oh, my
6: God. of mm. creatures celebrating the air, you know, and the earth. But I think the serpent mound is the only one that we've ever been able to really document that has so much going on. Yeah. It's like the universal logos. Do you know, you know the term logos?
2: Yeah, I've heard the it term.
6: Beams, it's like the reverberating principle of the universe. It's like string theory kind of bases this theory in, in, in the antique logos theory. Logos is the word of the creator. It's the vibratory... Wand by which the universe was created the atoms were kind of Shuttled or sort of vibrated into existence and and the Egyptians called it um, the great serpent Because Mm -hmm. they believed this the serpent was the first creature that was made by the invisible one God and with that wand that tool the entire universe or the basis of the universe the proton with all its subparticles, was made. And then a uh, multiplication ensued from the mouth of the serpent. And not only did the, did the basic proton emit from the Logos or the mouth of the serpent, which is really just a form that, you know, that's that been given to something that's formless in a, in a manner of speaking, but also the souls of things, the life force principle itself was regurgitated from the belly Of the serpent, Hmm. and so we believe the serpent was held in the highest veneration by these people, but that when um, the phoenix closed down and returned to the form of the worm of the serpent, Tolkien likes to call the worm uh, the serpent a worm, or dragons a worm. um, the 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 people's mental outlook began to deteriorate in a in, in a way. That uh, once the medicine is taken away from people, they could no longer sponsor their internal mechanisms to, to regenerate in the same way as what the plants and the trees that were being nurtured by this life force essence, which permeated throughout the land too, um, could sustain. So um, we see a, a gradual deterioration in the memory, the physicality, and the spirituality. As well as the intellectual capacities of the human race, starting about six thousand years ago.
2: Well, you know, I'm and
6: that's why history history seems to have begun, especially Western history, about five to six thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, around the same time as the uh, the people over at Mesopotamia were in the Anunnaki. Uh, the Anunnaki were just one race that visited us that's right. in those days. Right. There were probably hundreds of different. Um, um, uh, peoples that came and traded with us. Hmm. Now, the Anunnaki may have traded for gold, but I seriously doubt that they were enslaving people. That's just my opinion. But, um, you know, when these myths get passed down, it's like whisper down the lane. They tend to deteriorate with mm-hmm. these generations. Right. Something is forgotten. And, and so we're left with Eden and how you know, the serpent was being punished by God. No, no, that wasn't the way it was. We've just forgotten the way it was. And, and when this system comes back to us, we'll have the etheric principle restored to the very air we breathe and we'll be able to identify the so-called UFOs we see on the margins of our vision circulating throughout the skies around the world as really kind of cargo craft and pleasure craft of people who live in the etheric plane of this planet. We don't live there. We're in an intentionally, etherically deprived zone, which, because of somebody's love for drama, uh, is a very desirable place to live just before the phoenix rises again and sort of merges back into the etheric body of the planet and the astral plane. Can, can so I... it's, a, it's kind of like a theater in a way.
2: Yeah. Well, and <laughs> metaphysicians believe that Earth is a, uh, a school, is a planet that we think of as a school to come to learn how to deliberately create, how to hold a pure frequency without flubbing it up and that sort of thing. Um, and, yeah. and, and I do believe that too, just based on all of the years that I've done what I've done as a soul intuitive. I, this is going to sound like an off the subject question, but I don't feel that it is. Do some people believe in fairies? And by fairies, I mean uh, animal, I mean plant spirits, nature spirits, that sort of thing. Little beams of light that you will see, like the little angels of blades of grass and flowers and plants in the water, and that sort of thing around the serpent mounds. Have has anybody ever spoke about that kind of little energy, those types of energies around the nature kingdom connected to the serpent mounds, Douglas?
6: Yeah, there. Uh, you can call me Ross. I go by my middle name.
2: Oh, awesome! Thanks, Ross.
6: Yeah, that's cool. Um, we have clubs of people that believe in fairies that congregate at Serpent Mound because there they go. They, people with second sight can see them readily. I've had, I've had people report to me. They've seen all kinds of incredible phenomena. If they just learn to sit very still yes. uh, on the grass near the serpent, <laughs> just sit very still and try to keep your eyes open and stare into the dark eaves beneath the trees yes. and the landscape, and you can see all kinds of magical things
4: going Sounds on. Sounds like you need to go there, Eddie. Yeah,
3: well, people that believe. You
4: know? Yeah, well, even as you but speak about
2: there, it, about the energies yeah, there, why? They're
6: are conducive yeah,
4: yeah.
2: to it. So. You can, when you're speaking about it, you, I can literally see it in my mind's eye.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, uh, and Out of sight. Yeah, just and not just the little fairies, but all kinds of little things like you said. And I'm glad you said it before because, you know, because I can come off sounding a little cray-cray. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, and, but the and we people, know him, so yeah. yeah <laughs> the people who know and love <laughs> me, they're love like, okay. <laughs> we so, still love him. Yeah, and seeing fairies and little <laughs> trolls now. But, but I really do feel that. And what would be the significance? You were speaking about water earlier, and I wrote it down. I wrote down fairies, question mark, water. What do you think, moving into the future, where our water, people say we're going to be at war over water, it will end up being the next big commodity. Um, What, with the serpent mounds, the Anunnaki, that sort of thing, was there any connection to water, alchemy, medicine with them then versus today in our humanity?
6: They had from what we've been able to discern, a system of um, understanding nature that um, considered water to be the most prominent of the limpid elements. Hmm. Water, hmm. of course, is a recognizable um, gift of life. Hmm. Let me just, uh, I'll go off subject too on water just a little bit and then bring it back. The chemical makeup of water is H2, oxygen. And nobody really understands exactly how they relate to each other. Um, it, nobody knows what the water molecule would, would have itself look like if it was absolutely pure and floating in outer space so it could go whither it would. You know, the, the, uh, the, the two hydrogens in tandem with the one uh, oxygen, which is much larger. But we believe that because hydrogen is held by the alchemists and holy men to be a direct conduit to the etheric world, hydrogen, of course, being atomic number one, that because it has this dimensional quality of two in association with a third dimension of oxygen, the three of them combining to make the three dimensions. Then we have this sort of radical um, influx of etheric energy into the oxygen, feeding back into the hydrogen, which in turn leaches out into the landscape when you have a body of moving water. Now, I'm going to take that one step further because if water is absolutely stagnant, it doesn't really put out a lot of etheric energy. All you have to do is circulate it And rain really circulates it. It tends to pick up a lot of etheric energy. So rainfall and moving water across and beneath the landscape tends to bring life directly out of the etheric principle and and move it directly into the mud and the stones and the land. And that's why things grow better around streams. We think, Hmm. that's silly. It's because there's water there.
5: Duh! Yeah, because the water connected to the spirit.
6: You know that's why the the creator made water. It's the one of the most clever designs and so simplistic.
4: Well, also the water is so kind of circulating, so it's energized, planet. of sorts, right? In a stream. What, the giant? No, the water. If the water is in a stream and it's kind of circulating, then it's being more. You know, it's being aerated and it's being more energized. So therefore, you
6: know that might absolutely. Happen. And a whirlpool um, really kind of seals the deal on the technology of water. Mm -hmm. To create a whirlpool, especially one that starts on the surface and goes into the earth, Mm -hmm. it sort of closes the circuit, if you will, Mm -hmm. and creates a portal of etheric energy that just shoots out. So there are Indian legends that talk about, that hmm. the origin of many of their spirit animals w- w- came from whirlpools and streams.
1: Wow. It's
6: got goosebumps. And of course the Cherokee has several stories, and the, the Iroquois have several stories about the phenomenon and miracles occurring around uh, whirlpools because the ether is so powerful there. It just opens up. Uh, you know, hmm. ether normally has trouble eking through into the physical world because matter is so densely packed here. The Manitou's opened up the doors to the etheric by creating these great divining exercises of combining the sky energy with the earth energy, you know, the negative energy with the, with the positive earth energy, and this opens up the etheric world temporarily, and, and, you know, when you keep them going all the time, you actually call the clouds to the place, you know, like the Great Pyramid is supposed to have been able to call the clouds, and and create rain Mm -hmm. and and life force everywhere to the desert. Well, the same way with the Serpent Mound, we believe that one time it called the clouds so effectively that we we have this legend that was passed down to us from the Lakota traditions that says, in the days when the thunderbirds were living on the earth in the form of giants, the rains came without the sound of thunder or lightning, but that when the giants resumed their form as thunderbirds and lived in the sky, the rains returned and men feared the lightnings mm. because it was a return of the time of darkness.
1: That is so fascinating. Wow! I mean, just imagine. Wow! <laughs> yeah, because uh, you, you know, you know, that's normal folk. We don't get to listen to this <laughs> stuff, right? That's why I'm, I'm glad no. you're here because you know, this, this is interesting stuff, and I hope the people out that are that are tuning in. You're listening to Ross Hamilton he is an expert on the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio in Ohio outside of Cincinnati and uh, make sure you go pick up uh, one of his books called star mounds legacy of, an, of Native American uh, mystery uh, and so fascinating and another question I have for you that we, we talked about energy earlier and uh, the masterwork in earth energy uh, I don't know if Eddie and Walt, did you read about this, but you know the Serpent Mount is pretty much right in the center of a meteor crater.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I did know about the meteor crater. So c-
1: could you talk about that a little bit, Ross, because d- does that ex- significance that that the Serpent Mount is actually almost in the center of this meteor crater? Because, you know, this is, a, this is a worldly event that happened, you know, Millions of years ago, and I think that has some significance, or maybe maybe I'm
5: wrong.
6: Well, no. At first, uh, science didn't even know. I mean, just 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, it wasn't known for sure that it was a meteor crater. Uh, we thought it might have been some subterranean uh, eruption that occurred. But because there is a, a powerful magnetic anomaly that's miles below the surface, Right. But oddly enough, a, a, a massive meteor strike did occur there. I mean, we're talking uh, a piece of, of iron that probably was uh, as big as, like, I want to say uh, uh, a Mack truck, you know, just something huge. And the, uh, the response that it had was to rupture the earth and create a a, a crater that originally may have been 10 miles across. Wow. It's now been reduced about about three, four miles across. And uh, it it ruptured, turned the rock to liquid for for miles below the surface. And then it reformed itself uh, and and created this kind of splashing effect, you know, like when you drop a drop of milk on on a a Mm -hmm. cup of milk. It creates this, like, crown that comes back and... In, uh, slow photography, mm-hmm. well, right. like that, it like liquefied everything, and then came back, and and uh, so there was an uplift of of rock, and then everything kind of heat cooled off, and and, uh, and uh, that was a long time ago, you know, I took like Permian period or something, and then life began to uh, settle in, and and, uh, and what was what happened was, um, from the time that that happened to the present day there's been a leak from the mantle of the Earth and and a strange magnetic anomaly that the explosion seemed to have connected with deep down that endows the Serpent Mound meteor crater with an uncanny amount of uh, uh, lightning-calling, weather-anomaly-producing energy that can, uh, in layman terms, be, be described as an extensive positive charge a charge that has so much magnetic energy, but just enough electrons in it, that it holds the electro, the, the, uh, the magnetic flux, and is able to pull it off the magnetic field of the Earth instead of having it maintain rotating with the magnetic field of the Earth. It literally pulls it off like it would pull cotton candy off, you know, and, and, uh, and that rises up, held together by a weak electrical charge. And, and then the weather that's heading that direction um, all seems to want to join with it so all the clouds just lose their uh, their electrical matrix and so you have this phenomenon of of water vapor falling down to the to the land and um, an odd weather that seems to end right at the edge of the meteor crater and you can see it on the radar you know wow. it's, it's weird that a storm will approach the serpent mount crater and and by the time it gets there, it's all gone. <laughs> or if it does get that far, the, the Serpent mountain Crater sucks all the energy out of it. It's just amazing. Well, they used that energy when they built the Serpent Man. I think they tried to uh, kind of bring together a lot of acreage and focused it to that one point so they could create a living God kind of Manitou, something that uh, would hold on its altar up to heaven and invoked the spirit of the gods in the form of a, not lightning, it was something far more powerful, it was like plasma or something, that that when it was partaken of, it became like manna to these people. And that's why it said, even um, uh, by the Sioux, my, my mentor was Vine Deloria, he said that his elders taught him um, that, their people lived to be two to three hundred years old in their mm, memory, really? because they still held, still held the knowledge of how to produce good medicines, right up until you know, like just a few thousand years ago, and and that and but by the time the white man came, uh, the the life expectancy of native people was a little bit better than white people, but but uh, pretty much on the same keel because we, we have all planet wise seem to have deteriorated mm-hmm. spiritually and intellectually but uh, unfortunately the white the white race the European races uh, developed gunpowder and the mm-hmm. forge in advance of the native people here and were able to uh, pretty much uh, defeat them militarily and through uh, diseases mm. uh, because the uh, basically the, the native people here hadn't had to deal with the same kind of uh, of immune system um, uh, traumas that the European races had, and they weren't prepared, so uh, their memories were then completely lost as they lost track of their own people being separated by the whites. And so, we don't have the stories of the gods that the that the native people kept scrupulously. We only have the Mesopotamian and the Greek, and you know, and the Norse uh, renditions. Of of, uh, of the uh, of the advanced uh, spiritual beings that uh, they had memory of uh, six seven thousand years ago. Oh, we've lost everything. We've forgotten so much. But as the phoenix rises, I think we're going to be uh, coming into our own. and uh, That's beautiful. We've had a lot of interesting enlightenments doing the research.
2: And Ross, there's literally, we literally have about four or five minutes left, but very quickly, isn't it interesting that the, the white race has lost contact with all of this core essence frequency that you're talking about and passing down of the stories and the connecting with non-physical and physical and the gods, as it were, but they hold on so tightly to... Sometimes negative aspects. The of the Everything, everything, but yeah, they mm-hmm. hold on to the the mm-hmm. the certain aspects of the Bible and they hold it in a linear thinking way. I just that's just me personally. I'm just babbling off like a crazy person. <laughs> no, uh, it's
4: true. I think it's true.
6: So let it. Let us. Uh, you're, you're right on. Yes, it's, it's dead true. On the money. Yeah, and, so, and, and it's the money that that does it. You know. It, yeah. It's uh, really? we can see the whole problem inherent in our banking system, our current banking system. Yes. How you know this usury. Hasn't made slaves of most of the world's people. And, and that um, it's only if we can stop this marginal uh, mm-hmm. profit-taking of the banks where they loan us money, but they they never had it to begin with. They just tell us they do. Yes. But we pay them back with our labor and our sweat and our heart. We do. You know?
4: And Wall that's Street and ridiculous. Washington are more connected than anybody wants to admit. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yeah. hmm Well, and, and so how—
6: That's going to— yeah, go
2: ahead. And Ross, how can um, Tony's listeners get in touch with you, Do you, your website, and different ways to get in touch with you on social networks because we want them to know about your newest book, Star Mound's Legacy of a Native American Mystery. And, and you have other books too, The Mystery of the Serpent Mound, A Tradition of Giants, and Wonders and Mysteries right. of the Great Serpent Mound.
6: Well, Wonders and Mysteries you can get through the Serpent Mound Museum store, oh, wow. along with all my other books, but for A couple of my titles are, are available on Amazon. Uh, my publisher's out of Berkeley, and they have a good distribution network. So, uh, you know, Amazon sells just about everything. Right. <laughs> so you can find yes. my titles under books by Ross Hamilton, Amazon, you type in it. Also, Ancient American Magazine has a bookstore. You can get some of my titles through it. And then uh, I have a Facebook site, but I, I have no website at this point because okay. I'm not ready. I have so much to do before I can do that. And my website is Ross Hamilton, and I have the icon of the Serpent Mound in winter with snow covering it. Oh. So I, I accept anybody, virtually practically anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he, he you. I know. Uh, well before well, if we... I find out you're a prostitute, I will say no. Oh. no go go <laughs> away. <laughs>
1: I'm a not a high class. <laughs> <either. laughs> Even if you're a high class, we'll, it I'm, yeah. I'm an escort. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So <laughs> th- the last question is we you know, we yeah. always we always end up trying to tie something into you know, UFO, alien or extraterrestrial. You know, when you talk about UFOs, you talk about hot spots. Is the Serpent Mound is that area known for a hotspot with UFOs? And the crater. And the crater.
6: Yeah, I'll put it this way: for some reason that nobody really understands, Wright Pat, who is believed to hold the uh, the remains of uh, the, the crash vehicle from out in um, New Mexico, I, know, I guess it was Nevada, back in the uh, back in the late '40s, uh, yeah. that famous crash. Uh, yeah, Roswell. Roswell. Um, they yeah, and the one that supposedly has done a lot of the testing for the stealth, you know, which uh, has the technology <laughs> for the um, Philadelphia experiment, mm-hmm.
3: you know, they,
6: to do it. they rule the whole corridor space in that area.
1: <gasps> oh my God! Really?
6: Commercial flights, unless it's just a, you know, a quickie. Um, when the Serpent Mountain wow. Crop Circle appeared, uh, they were down there with Harrier jets taking pictures, hovering over the field. And they sent in agents wearing entirely black, um, and they were crawling around the the soybean field, taking samples. They were there, Johnny, on the spot. They didn't even ask permission from the landowner.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. They
6: just took off. And, uh, I mean, there's some serious UFO protective stuff going on in that area. Um, we've had a number of sightings. There, there's just phenomenal amount of weird and and timely and and I guess you would call it ethereal and stuff vor, and vortex going on in the region. Yeah, it, I mean I could write a book about it, well, it. I, mean, <laughs> I think
2: it, you should. It, it literally sounds like it's a portal between worlds on, on 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 a small level from the fairies all the way up to the phoenixes.
1: Yes. Oh, thank you, Ross. <laughs> well, Ross, thank you so much. We so appreciate you taking the time out and, uh, and be a part of the show. And, again, we always invite back people we really love we and like, yeah. and we like, and we would love to invite you back we again because we back. have so much more to talk about. I know. <laughs>
5: yeah, yeah.
6: Okay, man. Thank right. you so much. It's my you. pleasure.
1: Yeah, and come back soon okay. and, and take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Ross. All good. right. Thanks Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. All right, guys. Well, it is uh, time to say goodbye to everybody. Uh, Fastest two hours on radio. I know it's uh, <laughs> this. This is uh, one of those times where it's uh, you know you learn so much, and the, like the title says, "Truth be told, and experience becomes truth." You know, it may not be your truth, but you know you can always learn something from uh, uh, somebody that has spent years of research and years of digging into. You know, archaeological sites and, you know, traveling the world and, uh, you know, like us. Well, Eddie's had a chance to travel, but I've never been to these places that I've always wanted to go. And I'd love to go to the Serpent Mound and Machu Picchu and. And we want to thank all of our guests that, that come on the show, and uh, don't, 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 don't tune us out yet, because in October we have some two amazing shows, amazing shows. We've got two shows. One on Halloween, thirty first. Halloween, uh, Eddie. I think, I think Eddie's been working on trying. We're trying to get a seance together. Yep. And I think that's going to be really good. The White and then we have one of the is it the seventeenth? Seventeenth, uh, yeah. Craig, uh, Craig, Craig Cam- Capabazo, stranger oh, at the me?
2: Pentagon, and he's got a great book about the extraterrestrials, yeah. the different races, the different. And we saw a movie too. System. I know. We it, stayed up
1: till midnight yeah, in Burbank, did. which us, Eddie and I, I don't us usually do. That's old people. <laughs> right. But it was so fascinating that uh, it, it just blow your mind. It's based on a true story.
2: And just some of the things we've heard from eyewitnesses, like this is the great thing about Ross Hamilton. It's the great thing um, about Marshall Clairfeld. These are people who have been there. They've seen it. They've, other, there, they've seen other eyewitnesses that have experienced these uh, phenomenons as well. And so when you see something like Stranger at the Pentagon or you hear someone talk about... Uh, the Native Americans knowing that there are beings from other parts of the universe that cohabitated with us here on Earth. For thousands of years. And, 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 and thousands of years ago. Yeah. yeah. And still here, as it were, coming back and forth in their own way. It It helps you open your mind, helps you open yeah. your heart to... New dimensions and new truths, new realities,
1: and we hope you guys enjoy it. Walt and Eddie, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you Tony. Uh, we, as always. Yeah, and uh, next week, uh, make sure you tune in. Uh, we do have a astro- astrologer, right? Ooh, what's, what's it? I, 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 it? Deb, Deborah, Deborah, tell me your name because you set it up for me. Deborah Clement she uh yeah she's gonna give me a a, a, reading. a reading yeah yeah I'm, kinda, I'm very interested to see where this goes
2: <laughs> yeah deborah clement anchored in astrology.com
1: phenomenal
2: no. yes <laughs> and just so you guys know that are listening it's not going to be only about tony getting a mini read from oh, yeah. her astrologically speaking it's about the country, what's going on in the United States, what to look for, what to look out for, what to be excited about between October, November, and December going into the top of January and February.
1: Well, we have a big election coming in in the early November. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> right. This is going to be a good one. All right. We'll talk to you later, guys. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye.
5: This has
4: been On Air with Tony Sweet. Don't worry, there's more online. Search On Air with Tony Sweet on iTunes for past shows and exclusive behind-the-scenes content. On Air with Tony Sweet every Wednesday and Friday from 4 to
3: 6 p.m. Pacific. Right here on UBNRadio.com.
0: It's true that some things change as we get older.